0: Hello, hello. Aha. Hi, everyone. Sorry about that. Um, our next writer. This is really exciting. Uh, this one excites me a lot. Um, uh, John Newman. His
1: book's about South London. Uh, one of the big drawbacks about writing local history is that you don't get too many opportunities to write about sex or violence, um, unless it's the kind of violence to the landscape that uh, has taken place over the last two or three hundred years in terms of uh, what's happening to Brixton. Um, But on this occasion, I do get a kind of really big opportunity to write about shit. Uh, So let me read you this. A large and very detailed plan held in the Lambeth Archives gives a snapshot of the development of the Holland and Angel Estates in the Ephra Valley in North Brixton in 1850. It shows a network of newly built streets set among the last of the turnip fields and nursery gardens, and bisected by open drains and ditches which drain eastwards into the River Ephra, just off the edge of the map. The lines of Barrington Road, Sussex Road, Millbrook Row, Cold Harbor Lane, and Loughborough Park are edged with unsold building plots, terraces of new housing, and larger detached villas, many still under construction. The finished houses already have their aspirational builders' names, Russell Terrace, Pelican House, Belgrave Terrace, but this plan is much more than just a glimpse of suburbia in the making, for its purpose was to record the provision of drainage And this townscape of new roads and drains and old ditches has been peppered with tiny, neatly inked observations. Four feet of water and deposit. Materials and workmanship bad. Covered with wood. Six inches of solid deposit. And most frequently of all, The regularly repeated comment, no smell. The euphemistic deposits and the negative information about the smell actually suggest only one obvious conclusion. Mostly, it stank. For what this plan really reveals, just one year after cholera had killed 14,000 people across London, over 2,000 of them in Lambeth. Is the ramshackle precariousness of the suburban free for all that was taking place around the edges of London, as thousands of new houses without any proper drainage were being thrown up? Maybe in its quiet way, it is as emblematic of the contradictions of Victorian modernity as something like Dickens' description of the railway coming through Camden Town in Dombey and Son or Turner's painting, The Fighting Temeraire. This zone of half-built, cheap, stuccoed structures with their stick-on Italian porches set between scraps of muddy field and threaded with open ditches in which human faeces slowly flow towards the River Ephra. It was a public health disaster waiting to happen. Yet instead of being depicted by a novelist, a campaigning journalist or an artist. It is the work of a forgotten surveyor with a nose for detail. That solid deposit pooling in the ditches of North Brixton eventually slid its way off the map, down the open ditch running along the side of Loughborough Road and dropped into the arched over Ephra by the White Horse Pub, now the Brixton Jam. It would have bobbed its way north in the darkness along the length of Brixton Road, skirted the churchyard of St. Mark's at Kennington, arched over in 1838, so that those confronting human mortality might not simultaneously confront human feculence. passed under Clapham Road before re-emerging briefly into the sunshine to the extreme but impotent annoyance of the householders of Hanover Gardens. Then to process slowly around the outer edge of Kennington Oval before turning into South Lambeth Road. To pause outside the house of one Mr. John Thomas. In June 1850, the same year that the plan was being surveyed, Mr. Thomas was in a bad mood. When he picked up his pen to write to the Times, his language was considerably more direct than that used by the surveyor. Three feet of excrement always exposed to the lungs of the neighboring population. He raged. Were the cholera here now, it would revel in this lethe of filth and abomination. From John Thomas's house, the solid deposit was then carried through the panting darkness between the recently constructed railway line at Vauxhall Station and on under the Wandsworth Road at Cox's Bridge. Coming back into the sunlight of Vauxhall Creek, it paused once more among the barges of Price's Candleworks as it waited for the tide to turn. Then, bumping against the wooden camp-shedding at the mouth of the Ephra, it bravely entered the Thames, just upstream of Vauxhall Bridge. Thank you,
0: Thank you John, that's fascinating. Uh, John will also be speaking at the Ephra pub, there for Hall Tavern, uh, next Monday at 8 o'clock. Um, our, next, our next writer, Asher Senator, grew up in Clapham. He started DJing at the age of 14 at house parties and then on the Buchanan sound system with his sparring cu- par- partner, Smiley Culture. Asher's book, Smiley and Me, is a hard-hitting true-life account of how they set out to write and perform conscious lyrics at the birth of the British MC scene in the 70s and 80s. It recaptures the feel of a musical genre which came from the streets and led to the pair performing on top of the pops and touring the world. Please welcome Asha Senator.
2: I still haven't got taller, though. So. There we go. Excellent. I'm going to read an extract. Extracts from my new book, Smiley and Me. Thank you. Miss Coulcy. She may not have been every man's dream, but Miss Coulcy was certainly a queen in the eyes of us Buchanan boys. She may have proved a nightmare to some of us, but at the end of the day, we all appreciated her and gave her maximum respect. So much so, that even the girls who used to hang around the sound system accepted the significance of her existence. All the residents in the area knew of her and looked at her as they passed by, wondering how she survived the nightly escapades that she endured. Sometimes Smiley and I would check up on her in the middle of the night, mm, just to make sure that she was okay. We'd chill by her side and speak excitedly about the adventures that we'd experienced with her. Most times it didn't take long before other members of the Sound would join us and then the reasoning could last hours. Miss Coulsey was our chariot, our royal carriage, and queen of the ghetto. She was bearer of our tribulations and the keeper of many secrets, a resting place for many a weary head and a symbol of our commitment to Buchanan sound system. Miss Coulsey was the home and transporter of our sound system. Yeah, that's right, our beloved old truck. that earned the name Miss Coulsey simply because she was coarse-looking, coarse-sounding, and needed to be handled rough. <laughs> as noisy as a tank and equally as slow, she had anemic-looking faded green bodywork, fully bull tires, no handbrake, <laughs> weak foot brakes, Dodgy suspension, rusty bodywork, a stiff clutch, vision-blurring windscreen wipers, (laughs) and on top of everything, she needed a push start all of the time. (laughs) And I'm serious. It took maybe six or more people to push start Miss Coulsey, and they'd have to put in great effort to have the slightest hope of starting her. I was a designated driver and must have been around 16 at the time. So to me, it was exciting, exhilarating and a rush. Smiley admired my commitment and used to tell everyone that Asher's the driver of our truck. You know, look at that big truck and look how little Asher is. Buchanan's founder and junior and Ron the Builder, our amplifier technician, were the only other people spirited enough to take the wheel of this high-risk vehicle. Anyhow, Miss Coulsey was our saviour. She was the one that we praised on many occasions. So many people respected Miss Coulsey and referred to her by name. Anyone who had any affiliation with Buchanan Sound System would have certainly travelled in her at some point, and anyone who travelled in her probably had to help push-start her. She loved catching people out after a long night of raving. (laughs) All dressed up, looking prim and proper and feeling the effects from their raving exploits. Hitchhikers would end up soiled, exasperated and short of breath after pushing Miss Corsi a few times. Buchanan's following was healthy to say the least. Every young person in the area grew to be a part of the sound system in one way or another, and so she was spoilt for choice when it came to her customary push. We loved Miss Coulsey. Tears filled my eyes and my heart hurt badly when she was burnt down, murdered like a gangster. The news travelled quickly, and I was unfortunate to witness the last stages of her existence. It was too late to save her, as she has saved us on so many occasions. She crumbled under the flames, and I could hear crackling and popping as our equipment burned inside. Had it been the work of guys from a rival sound system, it might have been a little more bearable, as we would have surely retaliated. Had it been members of the National Front? It might have been a little more tolerable because that probably would have sparked a massive riot anyway, you know that. Even if it had been the police, it would have been somewhat more understandable as we already knew they didn't like the loud and beautiful reggae noise that we made. No, it was none of the above. Miss Coulsey was burnt down by a girl. A girl that had a grievance with Buchanan's founder, Junior. A girl who had chilled, hung out, and raved with Buchanan for years. It was a girl that had fought and stolen for the sound, and someone I regarded as one of the last people who would have done anything to hurt Buchanan's sound system. That incident spelled the end of an era, and even though Buchanan's sound system was rebuilt, it was never the same without Miss Corsi.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, you. you, Asha. That's brilliant. Our next writer, Howard Cunnell, has published two novels, Marine Boy in 2008 and The Sea on Fire in 2012. He's the contributing editor of On the Road, the original scroll the uncut version of Jack Kerouac's American classic. Fathers and Sons, a memoir, will be published by Picador in February 2017 and will be a Radio 4 Book of the Week. Please welcome Howard Cunnell.
3: Yeah, follow that. (laughs) Fantastic stuff from Asher. Um, so I'm going to read uh, from my forthcoming book Fathers and Sons which is published in uh, February 2017 and I'm just going to read the opening chapter Brixton London 2003 Jay is running her long brown hair ribbons out behind her Shay and Christian try to win the ball, but my daughter keeps it under control as the boys attack her from both sides. Jay bursts through a space between them and shoots low and hard. The ball makes a fast scraping sound as it travels over concrete and through dry leaves into the makeshift goal. She's seven. What's she thinking as she runs so fast? Does she notice the familiar high-sided building enclosing her? The blurred iron railings and walkways and arches of the flats that look onto the yard and seem to move as she moves. Or does the certainty of her home, its always being there, permit her not to see or think about it but to be held in an understanding of its permanence in such a way that she is untroubled, secure, free. I hope so, is what I want for her. Cardinal points are always there, they don't change. You don't have to think about them until you're lost. In autumn sunshine, tawny, soft, faintly edged with cold, cats sleep on the walkways, dappled paws and legs and tails poking out and twitching between the railings. I need to tell Jay that I'm not her blood father. I want her to have a little more time not knowing everything before I take certainty away forever. This was the world, Jay. Now it's changed. I'm scared that if I take away her dad, a black hole will take the place in her heart where her love for me is growing now. That's what can happen when you don't know who you are. If you let it, your life story becomes about what isn't there, not what is. I have to make a new story, really. It's urgent now. I can't wait any longer to tell Jay. She runs in sunshine, close to where I stand watching. Shay and Christian on her heels the boys love her but it's complicated she's a mate one of the gang the best at football although Chris won't admit this she can run the fastest beat them at any game but she's a girl with long hair falling past her waist and a flawless heart-shaped brown face and bright red lips the boys love her even as she races past and beats them again my strong and light-footed daughter is full of grace. Sometimes Shay and Christian have to have boy talks and they exclude her or meet secretly. When that happens, Jay sits alone at the top of the little fort in the communal garden and plays on her Game Boy. She doesn't want to be different to them and doesn't think she is, but the boys feel a difference. There are things they won't do or can't say in front of her. I wonder about this, how she outboys the boys. If she was a boy, she'd be the leader, but when Chris, a long-haired, stocky, Polish boy who's a head shorter than Jay, comes to call for her, you can see by his moon-calf gaze how her beauty blasts and disturbs him. I don't think he can quite understand how he's supposed to feel. Our ground floor front door opens to an arch straight onto the communal garden. I stand under the arch that is always in shadow and watch Jay run. I could watch forever but it's time for Jay to come in and have a bath with her little sister Rose. I leap out and grab her around the waist and pick her up and swing her. She screams happily. She loves to fight me. She likes to see how strong she is, to test herself and test me. I know she thinks that every time we fight is a time closer to when she'll be able to beat me. She's so good to hold and look at. She struggles to get free and I hold her closer. I breathe in her young animal smell. I kiss her neck and blow a raspberry through her hair and against her warm skin. Ah, get off me, Dad! She's strong, all long, hard muscled legs and wiry arms. It's all I can do to hold her to me. She wants to get back to Shay and Chris and the game. I hold her tighter and she pretends to bite me, snapping her teeth at me and being a zombie. She's panting. Hold still, Jade. She has drawings all up her arms, dolphins and daggers. Her jeans pockets are stuffed with Pokemon cards. If I don't do it now, it'll be full of knots later, then it'd be 10 times as bad. Let me go, Dad. I pick her up and turn her upside down. A Pikachu card falls from her pocket. She screams and grabs for it, but I hold her higher so she can't reach. Her hair falls in a shining cascade to the ground. I pretend to beat her with a plastic back of the hairbrush. I turn her the right way up, hair covers her face and she's laughing all the time. She parts the curtain of hair and sticks her tongue out at me, shrieks and closes the curtain. She stands in front of me all hunched up, her arms raised in a monster pose, panting and laughing at the same time. Come on, bare bum, I say. I really need to do this now. Something in my voice makes her snap to attention. Sir, yes sir, she says. She stands straight as a knife, arms by her side. She's trying to keep a straight face. I put one hand on her chest to keep her still. Her heart is thumping. The fingers of my other hand harrow through her hair, looking for the worst of the knots. When I find them, I gently try to untangle them with my fingers and then brush the hair. She pushes her body out until it makes a bow. She makes animal shapes with her fingers and then reaches back to attack me. Okay, stand still, Bear. I begin to brush Jay's hair. From the top of her head, I push the brush all the way down to past her waist. Static electricity makes her hair start to frizz out, and wild filaments are softly illuminated by the last of the sunshine. She's quiet now, tracing on the arm that holds her the patterns of my tattoos. I'm humming as I pass the brush through her hair over and over. She's a kid. She's used to being acted upon, to having her life paused and controlled. I hope and feel she's being soothed by her dad brushing her hair, but mostly she's waiting to be released. I think of Gary Snyder's poem, Axe Handles. Snyder teaching his son, Kai, how to shape wood into an axe handle. Look, the poet says to the boy, we'll shape the handle by checking the handle of the axe we cut with. Snyder remembers the Chinese saying, Centuries old, we're making an axe handle. The pattern is not far off. Shaped and shaper, what kind of axe am I? Shay and Christian carry on playing, but their hearts aren't in it. They're arguing about whose turn it is to go in goal. They need their Jay back, especially Chris. Carefully, I separate Jay's hair into three thick and roughly equal parts. I place one strand over each narrow shoulder. The central strand hangs down her back. It's too thin and I borrow hair from the outside until I'm satisfied the parts are equal in thickness. I start brushing again and Jay sighs and kind of softly deflates. Hang on, I say. It won't be long now. Jay slowly raises her left leg and holds it raised. Her arm raises her arms, holds them raised. Her hands join together and pointing downwards. She makes a squawking noise. A crane, I say, braiding her hair, putting the braids tight against one another. Ha, she says quietly. Good dada. She puffs out her cheeks, sticks her belly out, makes little ears out of her closed fists and puts them by the side of her head. She growls. A bear? Course, she says. It's now her young heart beating hard against my hand that Jay, beyond everything else she is, feels most strongly like a gift. What comes to me as I stand brushing Jay's hair is that because there is no shared blood, the strength or otherwise of the connection between us will always rely on love and love only. The love I show to Jay and her two sisters and to their mother will always come back to me amplified. Love is the shaping ax. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Howard, and um, don't forget to listen out for Howard's book on Book of the Week next year. Our next writer, Rabia Hussein, is a playwright and poet, as well as a writer. She's performed poetry at Lost Theatre, Space Arts Centre, and Rich Mix. She was part of the Battersea Arts Centre's London Stories Made by Migrants this year, and is part of Tamasha Theatre's Playwright Collective. She was co writer in deckchair collective Steampunk at Open Ealing in 2012, and her poem, Child of the Colony, was published in the Asian Writers' Collection of Contemporary Asian Writing. Please welcome to the stage Rabia Hussein. Hi, everyone.
4: Uh, So, I'm going to read two poems um, from a collection I'm working on, Um, so I'm not as accomplished as some of the other writers that have spoken here. Um, So, the first poem is called Hollow Verse. I saw dreams dip in the dirt of the Thames, float away with the plastic bottles and shit-covered nappies, sink beneath the heaviness of dreams gone before, drowned by the sighs of the hopeless. Anchored by the city's hollow soul, held by lights and building sites. Dusty hotbed roads and traffic jams that look like Lego pieces. The noise of dying passion screaming all around us. I saw people vomit their childhoods out of themselves, throw curiosity into the black bins of these streets, put on grey coats of maturity and ash-covered conversations and wear them until their backs arched with heaviness. I walk barefoot on the cobbled and stony streets, felt stones on my soles press into me, fall off and leave their print. I saw friends by colored cars and cemented houses, walk dogs on wet, soggy grass, hold their children in one arm and sorrow in another and fill the holes in their guts with clay pottery and oil canvas paintings. I left my parents watching a flat screen TV of people crying because their daughters aren't married their eyes far away hiding what they had always been hiding. Lighted houses, curtains and stained glasses, the smell of home that made me nauseous, the sounds of everyday conversations that made me dig my nails into myself. I heard slow death at each tap of a broken keyboard, brains shedding away on the screens and rotating chairs of black sticky leather and filling pads with running ink-covered lists not of desires. Talk of sex and sambuka, blue flashing lights and throbbing sounds, hearts beating into themselves, asking to be forgiven. Jumping bodies and still minds escaping into a world of noisy static disguise, leaving their real selves behind closed, chipped, wooden doors. I wrote you a song, but you said you wanted a diamond bracelet. And I disappointed you every time again when I carried my heart in my hand and not in my pocket. I saw saintly men walk this earth, hiding behind the holy book as they fucked themselves to the sounds of mass agreement and virtues that were covered in sacred lust. I saw prophets in your colourless dreams and God in your colourful brown eyes and closed my eyes to neither of them. I, saw, I heard calls of prayer, black and white, beautiful sounds of ugly men and unfulfilling followers who know how to trick themselves. I heard stories of tripping white thunder and red rain, of the orange sun heating my body from a mile away, and burning smiley sinners into watery pools of themselves. I left Muhammad on a winged horse and rose to play myself a song of carpeted rooms and mosaic-cold hallways, of rocking children and age-old glass toys. I left altars and chapels and mosques and temples and your heart where he lives, and threw myself onto hell's fiery pit to burn my navel, until it was inside out. I saw my own insides nailed to a crucifix and my blood dripped down into the silver chalice, spilled into the baptismal font and used to cover my own forehead in red. But if I took the words of the scripture and ran them over my body, wrote them on my skin, sniffed the pages, inhaled them into my lungs, traced the outline with my fingers, kissed the paper with my lips, used the book as my pillow, the cover as my night and held it close to my chest, it still wouldn't feel as right as you do. Thank you, that was the first one. Okay, um, hopefully this one's a little lighter than the first one. It's also a little work in progress, so bear with me. This is called After Dinner. You look at me like chocolate, an enticing after-dinner treat. Laid bare upon the table amongst plates of leftover bread and gravy dripping from splintered wooden ladles. Amongst the stench of old Sunday cooking, I smell of Chanel. And next to the ripped up pieces of chicken skin and butter sauce, my body is fucking beautiful. I'm like an apple-shaped sin, crunchy to bite into. Cover me in sugar, and you know I'll go well with ambrosia Devon custard. I'm like that chocolate box you've been waiting to open on Christmas Eve, to be enjoyed with a digestive on a leather sofa and cigar in front of a fireplace. You tell me I'm always pleasing, fruity, sweet, sometimes bitter, but easy to unwrap with your strong, cold hands. Your palate is ready to taste me. Leaving me exposed, you follow your craving across my thighs and back, licking and eating away, Smiling between those lips, you have bits of me stuck between your teeth. When you come to the end of your pleasure, taking the last bite to savour and swallow, you wipe me off your mouth. And knowing that you need no more, you take that gold shiny paper, which was wrapped around all of me, squeezing and scrunching it tightly in your palms, you throw it out into the street from your living room window. And then you go back to watching late-night films, with nothing of me remaining, except the sour, satisfying, sticky mess at the end of your fingertips. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Rabia. And haven't we had an amazing mix of different stuff tonight? Um. (laughs) So now we're going to have our last interval It's going to be a bit longer than the last one And come back at 9.50 or 10 to 10 Um, Don't forget the bookstall at the back over there Um, Go and see lovely Sharon All the books look so great So please do have a look And don't forget the Hoot and Annie Bar Who welcome us so kindly every quarter So um, we'll see you back at 10 to 10